Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast. The podcast today is a topic that is near and dear to my heart. As many of you know, we are going to be talking about grief, grieving people maybe who are alive and also those who are deceased. My guest today is the co-author of the book, What's Your Grief? And if you guys listened to my episode with Kelly Doherty a couple of weeks ago, we selected this book for our Cardinals Journey book club. And so this is if you think, oh, I've heard that title before. That's where you heard it. We love this book so much that we want to bring it to the world. We want people to read it, be prepared not only for clinicians, but also for anyone who may be going through grief or bereavement or have a friend and you have no idea or a family member what to do or what to say. It is such a valuable resource. So my, I have one of the authors here today, Lisa Williams. The co-author is Eleanor Haley. We'll get to know a little bit about her too. But my guest today, Lisa. She is a grief therapist and co-founder of the online grief community, What's Your Grief? So you guys are going to want to go ahead and Google that right away. (laughs) She has 15 years experience working with people who have experienced all kinds of loss and life transitions and has a specific interest in traumatic and unexpected loss, losses to addiction and ambiguous loss. So for those of you, I know many of you have listened to this podcast for years. You know my grief journey with the death of my mom was pretty traumatic and unexpected and that my mom had struggled with addictions and her transition came in 2019. So I'm really excited to be able to talk to Lisa too and share a little bit more about my grief experience here on the podcast. So Lisa met Eleanor, who I said also co-wrote the book with her, and she is the What's Your Grief co-founder while supporting families who had lost loved ones to unexpected deaths in Baltimore, Maryland. Drawing on their personal and professional experience with grief, What's Your Grief was billed as a resource offering concrete, practical, creative, down-to-earth, and relatable support founded on the values of psychoeducation and creative coping. It has grown to serve more than 5 million visitors each year. That is sad in some ways and wonderful in other ways, right? It's like, yeah. That's what you said when you open up this book. It's like, I'm sorry that you're holding this book or that you have to be reading this book right now. But that's amazing that these women have touched so many lives on such an important topic here. And Alita received her master's degree in clinical social work from the University of Maryland School of Social Work, as well as a master's degree in philosophy from the University of Warwick. And she has been interviewed as a grief expert for the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, NPR, and New York Times. She is the co-author of the book, What's Your Grief? List to help you through any loss. I'll show you the book again. It is right here. And I haven't really told you guys this, but I'm also going to be co-authoring a book called The Grief Experience. And we have asked Lisa to review our book. And that's going to be really exciting as well. So Lisa, welcome to the Path 11 podcast. Oh, thank you so much. I am really, really glad to be here and I'm really looking forward to your book. As soon as I heard about it, I just I thought it sounded like it was going to fill such an important need in the grief book space. So I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about maybe your personal story, because I feel like when you do grief work, grief, the grief work kind of chooses you. And usually people have a story somehow, some way where grief had impacted them. And they all of a sudden answered the calling to do grief work because this isn't, you know, I kind of say like being a nurse is totally not for me. And there are people who are called to do the medical work. So not me, but I couldn't imagine doing anything else but talking to people and analyzing behavior. And and now I'm in the throes of doing even more grief work than I ever thought I'd be doing due to my personal story. So what's your story and How did you come to want to like specialize in this through your master's degree and all of that? Yeah. So it's really interesting. I think I, I wasn't someone who maybe at the time where I went through some significant losses had this immediate, like, oh, I really want to make it my meaning from this to be able to kind of work in grief and help others. But 
now when I look back, you know, I think when you look back on your own story, you're able to see things kind of differently. And really loss has been part of my life, like many people, since a really early age. So when I was four, my parents had a baby that was stillborn. And my parents, in a way that was wonderful, especially at the time when there was not a lot of support about how do you involve kids at that age in losses like that. My parents did. They were really open from the beginning. I mean, I knew, you know, that I had a brother that was coming and I was excited. My mom, you know, it wasn't like an early pregnancy loss. I was very aware. And so from that point, my parents talked about that loss. We went to the cemetery and we would visit Christopher and it was a conversation that really my parents didn't shy away from. And I, I think there's a lot of factors. I think one, like culturally, my mom's Greek. And I think in both Greek orthodoxy, but just in Greek culture, there's a lot more of a comfort with talking about death and talking about grief. My mom lost her dad when she was in elementary school. Grief had been a, a part of her life. And then, you know, I had a couple other sort of significant losses. My best friend's mom died when I was seven. And that, was, you know, it went to this other place of like, holy crap, parents can, parents can die. And so that, you know, my parents did an incredible job, I think, supporting me through that. Like I went to the funeral. I remember my parents explaining everything. I remember my dad, like me asking my dad why she looked so yellow and my dad explaining what jaundice was to me at like age seven. You know, they were very kind of direct about stuff and they didn't shy away from it. And then Ultimately, when I was 18, my dad died. And that was, I always say it was sort of a weird combination of a of an anticipated and unanticipated loss. He had uh, been diagnosed with an illness that could theoretically be terminal, but he was waiting for a bone marrow transplant and he never got sick. Like he was waiting for a bone marrow transplant and we were just hopeful and optimistic and everything was was going along fine. He just still seemed like my dad. He never seemed like a, a person who was sick. And then he got an infection that was like a pneumonia related infection. And from three weeks from when he got it, his body just couldn't fight it and he died. And so most of the time he was unconscious in the hospital in the, in the ICU. And so it was sort of this like kind of weird in between expected or unexpected. And then you know, wow, you really probably didn't know. You really launched into my whole, my, my grief story is a little bit long. No, but, no, I'm happy to hear. So, you know, that was this hugely significant thing in my life and in my family's life. And my sister was only 12 when this happened. And in the, I mean, almost immediately, I mean, my sister really, really, I mean, we all struggled, but my sister really struggled. I think middle school is a hard age regardless. Mm -hmm. And it's a really hard age for for grief and for losing someone. And so within just a couple of years, my sister ended up with a really, really severe heroin addiction. And this was like, I always say it was like not before the opiate epidemic was happening. It was certainly happening in lots of communities, but it was before it started happening to middle-class white people as regularly. And so it wasn't being discussed at all. This was, you know, going back until the late, yeah, or around late 90s, 2000. And so that really continued for many years, a decade. She's in recovery now, but her partner who was like family to us, lived with our family for a while, was just somebody who was so important in our lives. He ended up dying of an overdose when I was 26. And it, one of the things that was just shocking to me at the time, I think, was the difference between how people handled those losses for us, how people responded to us, just the difference of losing somebody to an overdose versus losing someone, you know, the way that my dad had died in like sort of a way that wasn't stigmatized in the same way. And so I think that was, you know, that was really all when I was sort of trying to figure out what I was doing with my life. I, as you had mentioned, I had studied philosophy in undergraduate and got a graduate degree in philosophy in large part because I was spending a lot of my time trying to like figure out what, <laughs> what we're all doing here. What's, go, what's going on? And I 
but I really had sort of figured out I wanted to work with people. I was working with, I worked for a while with kids in the foster care system. And then I was working with homeless adults who are experiencing homelessness in Baltimore. And in those spaces, I was like, God, everybody's just grieving. Like it might not be death, but it might be that you've been removed from your home and you're, you know, you're grieving because you're in foster care homelessness that you've just lost so many things. And I think that was really when I, it started to clarify for me that working in grief seemed like how I was being pulled. And with my own life, it sort of, there was a little part of me that was like, oh yeah, duh, like I, I probably should have maybe seen sooner that this is where I would end up. And that, yeah, that was kind of the winding road that took me to eventually say, okay, you know what, I'm going to go back and I'm going to get get another master's degree and try to figure out how to do this in a way that can more directly speak to people who are grieving all sorts of losses, you know, that death losses, but also non-death losses too, which often get overlooked in our grief. Yeah. I mean, it kind of feels like, like you said, everyone is grieving. I mean, there's grief around just being alive, right? I mean, it's like, I mean, grief in relationships. I mean, you can't walk the earth and not be touched by grief in one way or another, whether it's grieving your health, you know, or if, you know, something had happened there, grieving losing a job, or maybe you get fired from a job and you didn't want to leave and you have to leave or there's layoffs or, you know, and then, you know, specifically too, like you're talking about many families you know, do have a loved one that is struggling with some sort of addiction. And that's a really, you know, challenging loss. Also, too, like Alzheimer's, dementia, you know, I've worked with a lot of clients there, too, where it's like, that's not my dad, it's not my mom, but they're still alive, they're still embodied. But it's kind of like, where is that person that I knew and loved and, you know, with Alzheimer's, you know, who remembered me and now they don't even remember who I am. So yeah, so I mean, grief is, hey, it's part of the journey, right? It's like, we're we're here. We're here doing it and we have no choice. You're going to be touched by grief. And, you know, that's the other thing, too. Like when, you know, I was reading your book as well. And, you know, our podcast is a lot about spirituality. It's kind of like we also, I think, have to ask that question, too, when we're trying to we're all like trying to figure out why are we here? How the heck did we get here? Who created us? Where do we go when we leave the physical body? And these are still questions that really can't be answered. And we're trying to manage these feelings attached to, you know, when people literally physically die, like the transition that they're just like not here anymore, you know? Yeah. So there's kind of like a whole spiritual aspect to this that I think sometimes can be a little lost in mental health therapy, you know, in like regular, just straight mental health therapy there, because that's, I mean, maybe they're teaching it now, but I remember when I went back and I was getting my master's degree, I had one class in spirituality, you know, Um, and one class in death. And it was the whole five stages, which now has like been proven to not be effective. Don't use it. You know, Kelly, my colleague, is like, all right, everybody needs to know. Every therapist needs to know. Do not use the five stages of grief anymore. So, yeah. So why don't we talk a little bit about let's stay on the topic of addiction and, you know, what that kind of feels like and and looks like. And I guess the, the story that I'll share was, you know, my mom had a really rough life. She had a lot of trauma since she was young. Her father had died when she was two, you know, so and the trauma just compiled. So it makes so much sense to me that it was really hard for my mom to be in her body, you know, through all those years. And she had bouts of being sober and then falling off the wagon. And at first it was alcohol, but then she also got into heroin at one point. And it was a crazy wild time. But I remember we didn't, she like, we couldn't find her for a while. And, and it was right around Christmas time. And it was the first time that I realized, wow, I think I really need to come to accept that, you know, my mom could die here. She may not come back. We don't even know if she's dead. We have no idea where she is. And I need to grieve her while she's alive. I've been, you know, grieving her, you know, every time she would fall back into her addiction, it was like my grief would come up again because it's like, okay, here's this person that is totally not my mom. And so I went to a jewelry store And you remember, because I think we might, I think you're a little bit younger than me, but do you remember the charms that were best friends where you get them? Oh gosh, of course. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Those, right. From like the mall, you know, that jewelry thing, right. Patagonia or whatever. So, so I went to a jewelry store and I bought this, a very similar charm that said mother and daughter. And it was with the thought in mind that I would bury her with it, that I would keep the mother charm 
and she would keep the daughter charm. And I just was just like, I think I need to buy this because if she is dead or if it felt like she was going to die soon, which I, tell me how she stayed alive even longer. I don't know. So and I remember, you know, she never showed up for that Christmas, but I had told my aunt what I had done. My aunt had opened it. She's like, well, I'll keep this, you know, for you. And hopefully when we find your mom, you know, but that was like I think it was in my early 20s at the time or maybe 30s. I don't really recall. And but it was really kind of a really sad moment, but also a pivotal moment where I came to some sort of an acceptance of her addiction and really realizing that she's either going to wind up in jail, dead, or there's a chance she gets sober. Yeah. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about what you have to say about this grieving process of people in addiction and who are still alive. And does that sound pretty typical? Yeah, I, I think what you described as you're de describing it, I was like nodding along I, because it is, I think, such a common path that people have to go through when they love someone who has an addiction. I love that you found this way to create sort of something that sim was symbolic and a little bit of, you know, you kind of picturing something that would be a little bit more of a ritual, but that probably just the act of getting it was its own sort of marking and ritual. Because one of the things that is so hard about grieving someone who is still alive is like, we don't have a template for how to do it. We don't have rituals. We don't have ways for other people to know how to normalize it. So part of path is sometimes just acknowledging this is, this is grief. This is what's happening. I'm grieving this person who's alive. And then there's this, this turning point for people, I think, that you describe so well, which is realizing this addiction is so severe that it might be fatal, right? It might be a terminal addiction. And it's not those people think of addiction so differently than someone having a cancer diagnosis and getting sick and things like that. There's pieces of it that aren't that dissimilar. Just like when someone has a cancer diagnosis that early on is maybe optimistic and they're working through it and everybody's like, oh, they're going to they're gonna be a fighter. We're going to get through. And then there starts to be some moments where you're, you're seeing things or you're hearing things that that thought kind of creeps in like, maybe they're not going to make it through this. Maybe there's not going to be an other side that's going to happen. And that with addiction, one of the things that though it, it can mirror that in some ways, those periods of recovery and sobriety and then relapse can be so complicated because you get into that recovery and sobriety and you're like, there she is, like she's back. And there's still all the skepticism. There's still oftentimes the, the period that has been filled with so many, you know, lies or confusion or the person being missing. And we have our own trauma responses to that that keep us protective. Like a lot of times, even when we see that recovery, we're like, should I trust this? Should I not trust it? Is it going to last for a week? Is it going to last for a year? Is it going to last for forever? And that's really hard because we are both wanting to open up to that person again and sort of get back some of this lost time and say, wow, if mom's here again and she's sober, like, let me embrace all of this. But also we're self-protectively like, God, do I want to set myself up for that disappointment again or that fall? And we can feel like, oh, am I being disloyal? Am I being, is it terrible of me that I'm not just optimistic and thinking to myself, this is going to be it. She's going to be sober long-term. She's cured. But oftentimes, if we've lived with this for years, we know that that's not the nature of addiction, that there's often ups and downs. And Pauline Boss, who's the, the researcher who first sort of really started digging into what does it mean to grieve someone who is still alive? She coined the term ambiguous grief. She talks about it as a relational stress model. And one of the things she highlights that's so different than when someone dies, while they're still living, we have this ongoing stressor of the ambiguity of the unknowns of, will she show up for Christmas? Will she get sober for a little while, for a long while? Will she die? You know, should I be doing more? Should I be doing less? Should I be cutting them off? Should I be showing them more love? Should I be helping them get into treatment? And so it's like our brains are chronic, 
chronically in this stress state of unknowing and uncertainty and feeling that weighing on us all the time. And so it's not that one death or or non-death is harder or easier. It's just that they're different. But I think that, you know, when I first read her describe that ongoing stressor and that ongoing uncertainty and the way our brains just sort of spin around that wondering, I thought, oh, this is, yes, like this is what makes it so different in some ways went from a death loss, which is devastating, but there's a, there's a, a sort of a, a bit of it where we know they're not, they're not coming back. Like we know that they're, you know, we know that they've died. We're not sort of wondering, should I do something differently? Should I go and look for them? You know, should I find a treatment program? And so I think that is something that's so important to acknowledge is the weight of that stress. Like if you're somebody who's loved someone with an addiction, just to be able to say like, you're living with that at baseline all the time, even if that person, even if you haven't seen them for a long time, like every time you think of them, there's probably this little bit of wondering, maybe, maybe they're going to call next week. Maybe I should go look for them. Uh, And that's a real weight that stays with us when we're living through that kind of addiction. Yeah. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about, you were talking about the stigma with your sister's partner that had overdosed and the way that people reacted to you and maybe what they had said compared to the loss of your father. Yeah. You know, I think with addiction, there's a couple of things that happen. There's sort of the way they treat you and your grief, and there's the way they treat the person who died. And I, I think the way that I often felt like people sort of minimize the loss was sort of by saying things like, well, you know, you probably, where else was this going to go? You know, we knew this was, that if people, if people are using, of course, this is going to happen. Sort of this feeling like, well, your grief is somehow should be less because you should have known that this was coming. Or yeah, this somehow, because it is a, through this behavior that society obviously puts lots of judgment around and doesn't see as still, unfortunately, doesn't always see as a medical issue that somebody once they've, yes, at some point, somebody makes a decision to use, but we know that physiologically, some people are more predisposed for things to become a severe addiction. Other people are not. Some people have those histories of trauma that make them more predisposed to then, you know, using substances and having a hard time stopping. But that sort of blame towards the person is there like, well, this was their fault. They brought this on themselves. Somehow their death is less significant or worthy of grief than if it had been a random cancer diagnosis or if it had been, you know, something that had a stroke or something that was out perceived as outside of their control. And so I think that was, you know, to me, it was almost like John's death was somehow like less tragic than my dad's was how it felt like people were perceiving it. Even though John was, you know, in his early 20s and and if he had had cancer, people would have thought, oh my God, this is absolutely, this is the most tragic. And so I just was so aware of the way that our perceptions are shaped by whether someone has been using substances and and then how my grief was being sort of acknowledged and supported and my sister's grief. And you know, there was also a lot of like, oh, well, this is going to be, oh, this is going to be the wake up call your sister needs. This is what's going to get her sober. She's not, you know, how could you, how could you keep using after something like this happens? But of course, what we know about addiction and my sister's case is a perfect example. She started using drugs to cope with my dad's death and it very quickly became her main and primary way of coping with grief. And of course, the idea that now dealing with a second devastating loss, that was somehow going to get her sober. Like, no, that's not how it works. No, she's going to go back to this thing that has been her primary coping tool since she was a kid. And I think people don't sometimes don't see that. So there's that feeling of like, well, how can other people still be using or how can the child of someone who had an addiction end up with an addiction yeah and i think it fundamentally misunderstands so much about how addiction works and how coping with how coping with loss works 
Yeah. Thank you for talking about that. And I'm sure there might be a couple of listeners that are like, oh man, I said that. I said that to somebody or, oh, I was thinking that that was my, my thought. But it's a really good discussion to make us stop and think, you know, do we have these like stereotypes around different types of deaths or, you know, wh- how do we feel about addiction and people who die from addiction or, you know, get involved in crazy, tragic accidents or overdose? And, you know, why would that why would that be different? So I think it's a it's a good topic that we're raising here right now. Yeah, I'm curious with your, you know, with your mom having gone through this. Do you find yourself ever hesitating or worrying if you share with someone that your mom had an addiction about how they'll perceive who she must have been or what how they'll picture her? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that was something that I struggled with even when she was alive, you know, because mm-hmm. here I was like this very successful person. I was getting my master's degree. I'm a licensed mental health therapist. I mean, looking at me, there was like a lot of shame and embarrassment around my mom's addiction to be like, oh yeah, my mom's, well, it was one thing to say she was an alcoholic and then it felt like, oh, okay, now she's a heroin addict, you know, and alcoholism seems to be like, oh yeah, who isn't an alcoholic these days, you know, and alcohol is like a legal drug and it's accepted. So it was kind of, you know, and I would always get like, wow, I can't believe you turned out so good considering you know, like the mom that you had and the upbringing. And so, yeah. And, you know, it's it's one thing to be like, if I were to say, yeah, you know, my mom died. She got hit by a car. She was crossing the road late at night. Mm-hmm. Oh, and she was also intoxicated. Her blood alcohol level was really high, you know, and then it was like, oh, you know. Yeah. Yep. So it's it's almost like it, it her getting the way that she died almost becomes a little less tragic because it's like, okay, oh, but she wasn't doing what she was supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it wasn't just like she was, you know, crossing the street and it was a real accident, like she was, you know, under the influence of something and and all of that. So yeah, so I have found that to be kind of like a hard pill to swallow. And I've, you know, I've had a number of different responses and reactions from people, some great, some not so great. You know, some people like, a person will go unnamed, but it was kind of like, I don't understand why you're so upset. Didn't you want her to die? You were so angry with her and her addiction. It was like, I wanted the addiction to die, not my mother. Absolutely. I, I was angry at the addiction and, you know, where it was taking her. But that didn't mean I wanted my mom to leave the earth, you know, because, yeah. you know, as a child of an alcoholic or even a family member of an addiction, I think you sometimes you do hold on to, well, you know, she was only 64, you know, she could have had maybe 20 years of sobriety. Yeah. But yeah. her her last fall off was triggered by death because she was with a long-term partner for 10 years and she was sober. You know, the, the longest that she had ever had of sobriety and her partner passed, you know, pretty quickly and tragically of pneumonia. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And I think it, it is. It's I mean, that's one of the times that the risk of relapse is so high is when people are grieving. And it's, you know, we talk to people so much of during recovery, like it is a time that is so important to try to get that support because it's, you know, and it's understandable. Like we live in this society that like blames people so much for their addictions, but grief is devastating and people are just grasping at anything sometimes to try to get through that pain of it. And unfortunately, if substances have been there in the past, it's really easy for them to come back up again. I I appreciate what you said about, you know, while she was alive to that feeling of the, the shame around it or the embarrassment around it. Because I think so many people struggle with that. They struggle with that, like being able to, should I, can I tell this person? Do I trust? Are they going to, how are they going to receive it? And, you know, we can see then why it becomes such an isolating experience is because we limit who we tell. And it's like, when do we need people the most? It's when we're going through difficult things like loving someone with an addiction. And yet it can be one of the hardest things to open up to other people about because we're so worried about that judgment and that people don't understand that two things can be so true at the same time. Like we can be so angry at a person and also love that person dearly. And we can, you know, we can have all of that together. It isn't one or the other. And after a death, I think you described so well that like, no, I didn't, I wanted the addiction to die. I went, that's what I wanted to end. And I think other people see it that way. But I think sometimes even we can internalize 
those feelings. People will describe sometimes having this feeling of relief after someone dies of an addiction and feeling Mm -hmm. so much guilt Mm -hmm. about feeling relieved. And one of the things I say to people all the time is they, they were suffering and you were suffering. Wanting that suffering to end and feeling relieved that it has ended, that comes from a place of care and love and compassion. If you could have chosen how it would end, you would have chosen for the addiction to end. You would have chosen for recovery. You would have chosen for long-term sobriety. You wouldn't have chosen for them to die. So that relief, it's that the suffering is over. It's not, it doesn't mean I'm glad they're dead. And I think sometimes people conflate that. And when they feel that relief, they suddenly think, oh my God, does this mean I I, I wanted them to die? No, you wanted the addiction to die. Exactly like you said. Yeah. Yeah. And I, there was, I definitely experienced relief, you know, in many, in many ways, also like relief for her, you know, because yeah. it was a hard life and, and where she was at, it was just, it was not a way to live. And, and also it like, it freed up parts of my brain because like you said, you don't realize how much, even if you're not speaking to them, you are constantly worried about them. Where are they? Mm-hmm. Are they okay? Do they have enough money? Who are they with? And you know, some of the situations that my mom was getting herself in and the people that she was surrounding herself and calling me and, you know, had, you know, a boyfriend that was like abusing her. She's like 64 years old in a domestic violence relationship and he breaks her hand and she's like, what should I do? I'm like, call the police, you know, but like I'm fielding these phone calls as I'm like going into a meeting, you know, and yes. it's like, oh my gosh. So the relief that that worry and that the unknown and the stress of that and having to hold boundaries and making, you know, all of that was just, that was taken off my plate. Yeah. And there was relief in that. Yeah. And I think it's just important to be able to label that and say like that, you know, yeah, of course. It's okay. Um, It's okay. And it's just, it's one of those emotions that I think sometimes people just have a hard time admitting, even though it's actually relief is one of the most common emotions that come up in grief and the research, but people really struggle to label it sometimes. Sure. And not even with addiction, but, you know, I've sat across people that have had somebody that had a long-term illness too, you know, and oh, and yeah. watching their loved one, you know, gradually decline and the suffering there and that they did, you know, feel relieved. And, and there's different relief there too, you know, of not having to, if you're, you know, constantly going to a nursing home or a hospital or, you know, the person is actively dying in your house and, you know, all of that, there is some relief that some of that comes to an end, you know, and and, you know, the whole suffering part too. So yeah, yeah. Caregiving, yeah. you know, caregivers often give up so much of themselves to yeah. to care for someone who is dying. And so it, again, it's this space where helping people to say, of course, there's going to be some relief there that you and they aren't suffering anymore. Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask you a couple of other questions yeah, here in your book. Man, I feel like I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> I no. love this conversation right now. I'm like, <laughs> oh, this is like, you know, sister from another mother <laughs> I've got here on my show. All right. So I wanted to ask you about rumination. Oh, yeah. So r- rumination in grief is a form of, um, of avoidance. So I, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that. And again, I'm just going to give another example. So my rumination, I would say, came in and it was triggered when I entered a grief group. And part of the grief group was, it's like body and movement. So it was like a grief group. And then we were training to run a 5K. Now, <laughs> yeah, so it, it was awesome. It was amazing. And, but it was in the fall. So it's, it was right in October doing the training. That's when my mom, you know, had died. It had been two years out. I was finally ready to like get back into a grief group. And in New York, I think you're on East Coast time too, right? You're yeah, you in yeah, Maryland? Yeah. So yeah. So you know what it's like, right? Yeah. So it gets darker sooner. So we're running and we're training more at six o'clock at night and it gets dark. And where we were running and training, there was there was traffic. And so I, even before this, I, it was really hard for me to get past just like the trauma and the impact of, of how my mom had passed and how she died. And it would be really hard for me sometimes to drive home at night, especially if I saw somebody walking on the road and they had dark clothing. And then I think about the driver and how was he? And like, that would be like my whole drive home, you know, and like constantly thinking about the speed of cars, like when I would walk my dogs, I would think about, oh my God, they're only going 30 miles an hour and she was hit by 65 miles an hour, you know? 
are faster. So I had this rumination of the night and of that point of impact. I'm in the grief group. We're running at night. Headlights are coming towards me. And I am like so triggered. And to the point where I had to skip out on one and I had, you know, talked to the therapist about it. I'm like, I think I'm having some PTSD here. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, like I just can't get it out of my mind when I'm seeing these headlights. And so so then we, I was able to do a progressive counting and EMDR therapy session mm-hmm. in between the next group. And once that happened and I experienced that, so much peace flooded in. And like even, and then I had to run again and it was nighttime, but I, there wasn't this image of what my mom's body would look like, or it was more like, okay, car's coming, better move over. And I, and I had that and I was like, oh my God, that's great. I was just thinking about me and not my mom and thinking about my safety and nothing to do with her. But I, I'm curious to know, like, what do you mean by it's a form of avoidance? Because I know that you talk about here, like once you get past the rumination, then it allows you to maybe grieve what you're avoiding. But I didn't necessarily feel like I was avoiding other parts of the grief per se, mm-hmm. or maybe I am and I don't even know it. But like after that rumination stopped, I just moved into a, a really peaceful place with yeah. the grieving process and more of a continuing bond after. Yeah. I don't I didn't feel like I needed to go back and address maybe other grief stuff. So I'm not sure. I was a little mm-hmm. confused by that and wanted you to kind of work that out in my head. And was yeah. I was I avoiding with that rumination or is that more of a PTSD thing? Well, that's what I was just going to say. I, I think that one of the things that's, that's tricky with rumination is that we can ruminate about so many different types of things. And that with trauma, when we have trauma responses, that those can create a rumination that is a little bit different, I think, than just that rumination as avoidance that they've done some of the research around in grief. So the uncertainty, I mean, everything that you are describing, images of you know, thinking about your mom and what that must have been like, those those sort of things flashing into your mind, not being able to stop thinking about the circumstances of the accident. There's so much of that that's tied to safety and security that's tied to your own. And when, when we talk about the difference, it's hard to tease out the difference between trauma and grief because there's, of course, overlap for many people depending on the loss. But one of the things they describe that I think is sometimes helpful is that Trauma responses are often fear-based responses and grief responses are often yearning or sadness responses of kind oh, of wanting to be awesome. with the person, wanting the, the, the world that used to exist, life before the law, you know, yearning for to talk to the person again. And so I think when those fear-based responses are coming up, that can be a little different because that's sometimes tapping into that, that trauma side of what may be part of the loss and exactly what you described, like EMDR doing really targeted trauma work can be incredibly helpful. The adapt, like if we think about the idea that rumination, just like all of our, all the things our our brains do, like usually our brain is trying to help us out with something. Unfortunately, (laughs) it's not always doing it well. Right. And, you know, rumination in that case is is sometimes trying to help us to have a sense of safety or security or help us to be able to feel like we, there's not other people in the world or we can protect them and ourselves. And so it serves that function. Rumination, when it is more of that yearning and grief-focused rumination, it often takes a slightly different shape, which is that we will go and we, people will sometimes, and I mean, for in the in the most extreme cases, we'll talk about losing hours of their day, going back and just replaying what it would have looked like if they were still here. What would, you know, what would today be like if I could have called them after work and told her about my day? Going back to maybe some guilt of coulda, woulda, shoulda, if I'm regret that I didn't help, did that I didn't see a symptom of my sister's illness that ended that she ended up dying by. And so I'll go back and I'll kind of replay the past and look back in this way that you think, well, you don't want to like, am I yearning for my old mistakes? Like, no, but you're yearning to be back there to be able to try to do it differently, right? You're yearning to be able to kind of 
have something play out in a different way. And so what the rumination as avoidance that research has looked like and what they try to sometimes help people with is oftentimes what that does is it keeps us mentally in the world where our loved one was still here. And it prevents us in sort of a, a way that can sometimes feel comfortable to not try to do other things to move forward in the world that does exist without them. And so people will actually sometimes describe that feeling of losing hours, why it feels so good is because it feels comforting, comforting, because I'm like imagining the world where my loved one was still here, even if it's awful, even if I'm imagining the fights that I wish I could go back and undo or the things that I wish I had said differently. I'm still in my mind playing over and over again, the world that they were still alive in. And part of the importance sometimes of dealing with that rumination is going, we have to be able to at some point leave those parts of the past in the past so that we can bring our loved one with us into the present and continue to have that continued bond, but do it in a way that is expanding our our world now and being able to look at how can I maybe have some self-compassion or self-forgiveness about the, the mistakes that I made rather than playing them over and over so that I can bring that meaningful connection into the present. The, the, the problem can be for people if I'm so hung up on those regrets of when I didn't you know, catch that diagnosis or whatever it is, that every time I try to have a continued bond with my mom, when I look at pictures, when a song comes on, when I think about her, then all I do, instead of being able to find comfort in those memories and continued bonds now is I go back and I replay the guilt or I replay, you know, I go back into the past and I try to recreate it. So that it's it's like a little bit complicated, I think, sometimes to explain. But that I think is part of the work is going, how do we close whatever this loop is right. in the past? So that not so that you lose the connection, exactly the opposite, so that you can keep the connection, but have it be around things that are in the present, things that you'll carry with you into the future. Exactly. Yeah. I, and I like that, what you said, closing the loop. It sure did. It closed the loop. Ah, yeah. <laughs> oh, so great. Oh, I'm um, sure it was so great. I'm yeah. so glad that it, that was so helpful for you. Yeah. And so I, I know this might get us onto like a whole nother topic, but when you were talking about the longing and the yearning and the grieving and the new diagnosis in the DSM of prolonged grief disorder, do you want to talk about that or have an opinion on that? Sure. You know, I think it's been exactly a year. So a year ago, they added prolonged grief disorder to the DSM and they had announced before that it was coming, but it was really controversial when it happened. And I, I think that in, I'll say out the gate, I pathologizing grief is not somewhere that I find particularly valuable. I think for most people and the research around prolonged grief and people who meet the criteria for prolonged grief shows that most of those folks also meet criteria for another mental health diagnosis. So they meet criteria for anxiety or for depression or for post-traumatic stress or something else. And so to me, it's not that I don't think there are people who have a really difficult time adjusting after a loss, a much more difficult time than certain other people and who could really benefit from some mental health and grief support with that adjustment. It's just that I think often those that it's that we have other co-occurring stuff going on. We have other disorders that are, that are happening that are making that grief harder for us or other stressors in our lives. The diagnostic part of it that to me, I think makes me nervous is that we've worked so hard to get people to unlearn the five stages of grief and to say that, you know, this isn't, it's not that there's this end point or that it comes to a close. And because the diagnosis uses the word prolonged and they say that people who've been having this certain set of symptoms for after 12 months, it really reinforces, I think, this Ola school idea that somehow after 12 months, you're going to like <laughs> up and at them, you're going to like break free of the that grief and it's going to be all all good. Now, the people who 
many of the researchers who created the, the diagnosis, they have a much more nuanced approach than the, than the DSM can capture. Many of them will say grief is absolutely forever. We grieve in some way forever. Our goal with this diagnosis was to say the way that some people are grieving makes it harder for them to have that continued bond always be there. It makes it harder for them to be able to actually grieve in a healthy way that lets them have a meaningful life and be able to grieve. And so the reason we wanted to get people to have this diagnosis is so that we could help those people not to get over their grief and find closure and move on or whatever, but to be able to grieve in a way that was more adaptive and a way that would help them to be able to have that bond. So I want to I, I want to honor the fact that I do think that the diagnosis isn't intended to put an expiration date or a timeline on our grief. But I think, unfortunately, because the DSM is not it's not a manual known for its ability to really have all of the nuance. A lot of that gets lost. And so I think the risk that's there of people pathologizing their own grief, of having other people pathologize their grief, of saying, oh my God, I must be grieving wrong because I'm having some of these symptoms. It's really important to be able to say, no, so much of this is about how is your grief impacting the life that you're living now? Or if you're still able to feel connected with your values and have relationships with other people and feel like you're building a a life after loss as as much as you don't want to, but that you're able to do that, you might have lots of these symptoms. I mean, that's what we know. A lot of people read the list and go like, yeah, I got, I've got that stuff, but I'm still living a life that is meaningful to me. And I think that's the part I would always encourage people to look at is just the life that you're living. If, if that's unfolding in a way that feels value connected and meaningful, um, Grief symptoms on a checklist are not the be all and the end all of whether you're grieving right or not. Yeah, good. I'm glad to have gotten your your opinion on that. And maybe maybe the title should have been more of like grief rumination, you know, or or something, you know, along those lines where it's yeah. the word prolonged isn't there. But yeah, I mean, the DSM is like that, you know. Okay, if these symptoms have persisted for X amount of months, or you know, I mean, that's yep. just kind of part of part of how that. how it is. And they had over the years. Before it ended up in the DSM, they did it for a while. They were calling it traumatic grief. For a while, they were calling it complicated grief. You know, they they toyed around with these other names, but ultimately, unfortunately, um, prolonged is what landed in the DSM. Yeah. Well, and this kind of leads me to a part in the the third section in your book about guilt and regret. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of the steps there, determine what you've learned from your guilt or regret, regret, what will you do with those lessons? And so when I kind of think about our emotions and, you know, I had done some research on emotions versus feelings, I'm probably going to screw it up and get them, you know, confused, but it was something to the effect where the science kind of shows that like our, I think it's our, our feelings, see, I know I'm screwing up, it's either the feelings or emotions can run through your body, like through the nervous system, sometimes within 90 seconds, you know, so like you can be flooded with the emotion and you can feel it. And physiologically, it can pass through in a a period of time. Sadness happened to be the one that could stay in the body the longest. And I think that they might have even studied it for like up to three months or something like that. Mm -hmm. Don't quote me on any of this, but it was basically, of course, the longest was kind of attached to grief and sadness that people can Mm -hmm. harbor. But it was what what causes more of the disturbance in life was more attached to the rumination of that emotion and feeling and how our thoughts kind of get caught into that. So when I was reading this, you know, about, okay, well, what lessons can you learn from your guilt or regret? What about lessons that we can learn from our grief? You know, so like if we can choose what how we're going to handle our regret and our emotions, or if we do have some choice with our emotions and what we're going to let in, you know, is it safe to be able to you know, say to someone without it being bypassing, because you had something in there too, like, oh, well, you have a lot to be grateful for. And I kind of feel that that is true in some ways too, you mm-hmm. know, like when we're studying consciousness and, you know, why are we here and what are we here for? You know, I think it's important to kind of also ha- have that gratefulness, you know, and yeah. how are you going to move forward type thing. 
But what about, you know, can we say, what what are you learning from your grief without it feeling like it's a bypassing statement or minimizing grief? Yeah, I, I, I think we should say it to ourselves always. Like, I think we should always ask ourselves that question. And I think we should give ourselves that permission to say, being grateful for the ways, the things that I have received from my grief isn't me being glad the person died. It isn't that I wouldn't trade all this like growth from my grief back to get my person back. Yeah, I all those things can be true. But that doesn't change that we can look at the full range of what loss brings to us. And loss often brings to us clarity that we didn't have before. It can help us to look at our purpose differently, to think about some of those big existential questions oftentimes are brought up by loss. People will look at their job that before the loss seemed like the be all and the end all and they were working 90 hours a week and, you know, is being torn away from time with their kids and suddenly a loss happens and they're like, what am I doing? My priorities were completely out of whack. Our time is so limited. We need to take advantage of these moments that we have. And there's so many things that we can, that are sort of byproducts of our grief. Being able to feel emotions that maybe we never felt or avoided before. Sometimes grief, sadness. Interestingly, some of the other sadness research shows when they look at why do, why do we have sadness? You know, if we are looking at it from more of an evolutionary perspective, they'll say, why, why, did it, why do our brains have sadness? And one of the things they think is that sadness turns us inwards and it allows us to sometimes become in a positive way, a little more self-focused to take care of ourselves and to heal in ways that can bring insight and can bring some clarity as we move forward or can make us value the world and relationships differently. So I think sometimes grief creates a space where we've learned to hold emotions that we didn't know how to hold before or that maybe in the past we would have just shoved down and compartmentalized. But Grief it forced its way in and we learned how to hold those emotions. And so I think it's so important to look at everything that grief has, has brought us and the worst stuff and the best stuff and to know that neither is canceling the other out. It's just all part of how we become shaped by everything that happens to us. And our grief is one of those significant things. Yeah. And this is why I just think it's it's so important for people to like think about death. You know, like I tell yes. people all the time, like I think about it every day and I don't mm -hmm. know if I'm ruminating on it, but like <laughs> to me, it is it's the best spiritual teacher. It's what makes me feel the most alive. You know, like if you really based your decisions every 24 hours on not knowing if you had the next 24 hours, would you live differently? And you know, sometimes we can all walk around and think, well, it's not going to happen to me or it's not fair that people in my life died. Well, guess what? Like everyone is going to transition out of the physical body. This is not something yes. that's not going to happen, uh -huh. you know, and the timing of it may suck and we don't like it, you know, and like your dad left when you were young, when you were 18 mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and, you know, a stillborn, you know, brother that you never got the chance to meet. And it's kind of like, sometimes I feel like we walk around like, well, I'm mad that this happened to me. Well, guess what? It's going to happen at some point. Yeah. Like, and if we can just find like some sort of acceptance with death and keep that, like I feel fresh in our head too, is that not that it like helps us accept a death if it happens, but in some ways, yeah, I think it kind of does because you're accepting the concept that death, death is inevitable. I mean, it's the one thing that's going to touch all of us. It's what unites us all. I think it's yeah. what put us all like in a really interesting space when COVID happened, COVID. everyone was questioning their mortality and like, am I going to be the one that gets it? Am I going to be the one that dies? Am I going to be in the ICU? You yeah. know, so, but our, our world is filled up with so many things to distract us to think about that, you know, oh. it's like, not today. And then bam, somebody gets into a car accident or, you know, somebody dies unexpectedly or all of a sudden a diagnosis comes and it's like, what? But yeah, I, th I think the more peaceful we can become with the concept of death and study it more and really try to figure out what, you know, not so much what is your belief system, because I think sometimes beliefs can be traps too, you know, if we just believe that this is it either way, but to like 
be curious about why you're here and where you might go and what do you want to do in the meantime? Yeah. Realizing how precious life is. So, yeah. And recognizing that that share, that suffering is something that, that grief, that connects us, you know, that, that death and the connection. I, Lucy Hone is a researcher who her daughter was killed in a car accident. Her daughter was, I think, 12. And she wrote a book called Resilient Grieving. And one of the things that she talks about in that book is that she had this moment that was sort of a shift from why me to why not me. And that that shift was transformative for her grief because why me pulls us away from other people. You know, it pulls, it makes it feel like what we're going through is so uh, such an isolated, unique and, and thing that we're a victim of. And of course, our grief is always unique, but we will all share this experience of grief and grief and of death and of loss. And I think when she, that shift she described so well is why not me? turned it exactly the other way and made me realize that there's a connection that lives here in this shared suffering that we all, maybe it's going to be in the future, maybe it's already happened, you know, probably it's both. And we can tap into that. It allows us to grieve and see our own grief in a different way. Yeah. And actually her book is one of the three that we're, we're choosing your book her book and another book for our Cardinal's Journey. Oh, book. wonderful. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And actually, and, and it's funny that you say that too, like, why not me? Because one of the things that I did was like, I Googled how many people per year die by getting hit by a car. Mm-hmm. And I saw the statistic and I'm like, oh, I'm with all of you people. I get it. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this happens. It happens. It happens quite a bit, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, well, thank you so much. I know, God, like I said, I could talk to you forever and we're making I, this a little bit of a longer podcast than it normally is, but I don't care because this is really good stuff. So, you know, your book, What's Your Grief? Can you also let my listeners know how do they find out more about the community that you're building? You know, what have you built? You know, do you see people privately in a private practice? Are you teaching conferences or what do you have going on? And sure. Yeah, absolutely. So we, What's Your Grief is our main website. That's always the best place to find us. There's hundreds of free articles there and we have a grief podcast and we have some online courses that are really, we use creative expression a lot. So we have courses that are using photography to explore your grief, journaling for grief, art journaling and scrapbooking and, you know, kind of those sorts of tools. And then some others that are a little more practical. And then we run a community for both grievers and one for grief professionals. But our griever community, it's a little different. We always say it's it, it's sort of a supplement to support groups or counseling or an alternative for people who are not interested in that because we really base it around the idea of connection that you can get through a forum where you can, you know, type and talk to other people. But we also do like a lot of webinars and then we do people where people can come on and just do some learning and discussion then also writing prompts where for people who just need some accountability like I've been wanting to journal but I never stick with journaling we do sometimes where we just get on we share journaling prompts and we just sit on zoom and we journal together to have some of that shared just shared spirit of doing it together and being able to talk so it's kind of a, it, it's a combination of those different things. So those, you know, if you find our website, that's always a good place to find us. For mental health professionals, we run continuing educations every month because we're really trying to combat that problem that you described, which is that most people can go through a graduate degree in counseling in psychology and social work in chaplaincy and never receive a course on grief. So we do try to make sure that we can get those continuing education hours in for folks. Awesome. Yeah, I still have my license. So I'm still like keeping it active. I don't think I'll ever go back to it. But you know, so I need those CEUs too. So I'm definitely going to check that out. I'll join. Yeah. And I'm so glad Kelly Doherty introduced us. And, you know, just made this connection because I was like, oh, yeah, this is great for my podcast. I want to meet her and talk to her. And I'm so glad that I did. Really had a beautiful conversation with you. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing in the world. I'm so glad that you have such a great community and that you're providing, you know, so much on earth and following your, your path, your passion, your purpose. It's needed. So thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you so much what you're what you're doing here to help people with the spiritual piece that sometimes gets left out of mental health is so critical. Yeah, I agree. All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening and sharing this hour with us. And I will put Lisa's information in the show notes. So 
check out the website, join the forums. And I hope this just really taught you something about grief, whether you're grieving or not, but ways that you can support others, support yourself. And this should be a book that you have on your bookcase, What's Your Grief? Maybe it's something that you keep in your Amazon cart and you send it to friends when they're in need of it. Um, so I hope you share this book. And yeah, and that's great. I'm so glad that we had the chance to have this podcast. And I hope you all have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for tuning in. Bye, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's show. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate and review the Path 11 podcast in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, this podcast is made possible by our sponsor, Path 11 TV. Visit path11tv.com to start a seven-day free trial of exclusive video content on consciousness, healing, and life after death. That's path11tv.com. And be sure to use coupon code PODCAST30 to take 30% off your annual membership. Start satisfying your spiritual curiosity with a membership to Path 11 TV today. Bye for now.